Good afternoon and welcome to the news, our special Keep Your Shirt On Thor edition. If you've seen Avengers Endgame, you know what we mean. If not, we probably won't. I don't know whether we'll spoil that for you. We are going to try very, very hard not to spoil uh, anything important for you, but we do need to talk about this movie. Uh, Before I talk about this movie, let me quickly mention who our panelists are today. Susan Bigelow is a librarian, a columnist for CT News Junkie, and a science fiction fantasy novelist. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. It's like the perfect lineup to talk about uh, uh, Avengers Endgame. Uh, Before we dive into this, we should mention, uh, in connection with James, Trinity Film Festival is this weekend. Now, quickly, what is Trinity Film Festival? Trinity Film Festival is a festival of films. It's uh, uh, films by undergraduates from all over the world. And uh, they uh, get entries from uh, people who have made short films, and then they bring them most of them actually show up and actually uh, will be there starting tonight. Uh, many people will be in town, and then we have the gala events tomorrow. And uh, they, we show the films, and then they get judged, and then there's an award ceremony tomorrow evening. Mm. And when, when that's all over, uh, then on Sunday, uh, regular news panelist Jim Chaplain, uh, if you think the Avengers um, Endgame is star-studded uh, and multi-everything, well, uh, Jim, Jim Chaplain every year has this benefit concert at Infinity Hall in Hartford where he brings together on behalf of various good causes some of the really great musicians from the New England area. And in this case, Big Al Anderson uh, is coming back to New England. Big Al Anderson, formerly of NRBQ and the Wild Weeds. So there are no big, there's no headliners uh, on these annual concerts, but wherever Big Al is tends to be kind of the center of the universe. But also people like Mark Arelli, Christine Ullman, uh, Tang Sauce, uh, the hip hop artist, Winter Pills, the very, very cool uh, alt band from Northampton, and somebody else that I'm not thinking of right now. Well, there's like a whole bunch of people anyway, and I will try to help uh, Jim out when he needs it on stage in terms of emceeing, uh, and it's all going to be fun. So uh, those are things to think about. Meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, back in the multiverse, uh, Avengers Endgame is the movie that promised to put a cap on that oil gusher uh, that we know to be the Marvel Comics Universe series. Uh, This new movie is the 22nd movie uh, in an interwoven cycle. It's three hours long. Seeing it in the theater is pretty much like jury duty. You can get out of it, but you better have a good excuse. And probably in writing, uh, pretty much various box office records are either being broken, tied, or threatened uh, by this movie. Today on the nose, we're going to try to be careful, as I said, not to spoil important things. We're also going to assume you're not stupid. For example, everybody from Black Panther died in the previous Avenger movie. The first Black Panther movie made a billion dollars. You figure out what's going to happen. Uh, Also, at least two major stars of the series have been very public about their desire to get out, but maybe you don't know which ones those are, and if so, we'll keep it that way for you. Endgame is divided into three movements. Part one, The Leftovers. Part two, The Stones Reunion Tour. And part three, (laughs) Snap Judgment. Uh, So we'll uh, try to go over all this, but uh, uh, Susan, we'll begin at the beginning. So uh, in a way, this movie does pick up where Avengers Infinity War left off, but it also kind of goes into this autumnal mood and kind of drifts five years into the future. But what you have is a depopulated world, depopulated of, of regular old people and depopulated of, of many of the superhero stars that we knew and loved from the previous movie. 
Yeah, and I actually think I saw, I did this right, I think, because I saw, I hadn't seen Infinity War at all before this. So I went and I saw Infinity War. I watched it Saturday night, and then Sunday I actually saw Endgame. So I could see them all as one sort of big piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means I didn't, I didn't have to wait two agonizing years or however long it was to get, <laughs> uh, to get the, the satisfaction of the, of the finale. Uh, but I thought it was really beautiful, the way that they filmed and expressed the, the empty world. Uh, so you have pictures of streets with everything sort of overgrown, um, pictures of fields that, that are just empty. You don't hear any sounds in the background. Pods of whales are coming up the Hudson, according to Captain America. Yeah, exactly. And it's we get you get the sense that it's not just you know humans that are gone, but also just half of all life on the planet seems to also be gone. Uh, so it's this sort of very sad, sorrowful, melancholy, empty sort of place. And that's where we start with our heroes because that's the place that they're in as well. They're all very sad and traumatized uh, at what happened at the end of Infinity War. Because of a snap of Thanos' fingers at the end of the previous movie, uh, we've lost all kinds of superheroes. Although interestingly, just by coincidence or luck of the draw or something, basically the original mm-hmm. phase one Avengers unit survives. I hadn't really noticed that at the end of Infinity War that you know basically all the Iron Man and Thor and Hawkeye and the Scarlet Witch and the Incredible Hulk, they're all, they're all still alive. And plus them, plus just a few others, um, including uh, Rocket, uh, the raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, who I really love, and Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy, who is probably the most annoying character ever created by Marvel. Um, But Bill, it's kind of interesting because obviously we're primed for action movies. But really, the, you know, this first hour or so could be underscored by, by Satie music the entire way. It's really much more a bunch of people who know each other having conversations, a lot of them about loss and grief. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I really did like about it. In fact, I mean, Susan is right that they really – you really put them to – together and it's and it's a five hour long movie never mind all the stuff that came even before that and it actually opens there's a little bit of overlap it actually opens just a few minutes before the previous um, movie ended because you see Clint Barton aka Hawkeye with his family and then things start to unfold the film had me right then and there. And I know I'm a geek and I know I'm a fan. I've been reading Marvel comic books since the 1960s. But I actually found that very emotionally touching. And then they pull in one of my favorite songs by Traffic, Dear Mr. Fantasy. And the film immediately had me. And as you said, Colin, for the next hour, it's very melancholy. It's not really much of an action film. And it is very much about, you know, what is that loss? What would that loss be like if half the world suddenly vanished, even though, you know, there are obviously environmental and ecological and Malthus, Mal, Mal, Malthusian arguments to be made that Thanos was not completely wrong, that the planet cannot sustain the way it's going. But then there's the actual human tragedy that would occur before that. And I think the film very successfully tries to encompass that as in, even though it is eventually an action film. So, James? Well, I, I, I agree with that, actually. The whole that, – that, that first beginning section of the film is really remarkable that it, that it is 
what it is. Uh, 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 I mean, most films now that come from the Marvel Universe or from any of the major distributors, they just feel that they have to start with a major action sequence. They have to grab the audience. The most remarkable thing to me was sitting, I sat in a sold-out house um, where the audience didn't react badly at all to that slow Hmm. start. It was really remarkable how they were drawn into it and how that completely, to me, blew out of the water the idea that you have to grab people right at the beginning with something that they were grabbed by something completely different, which was actually involving them in a more in a much more nuanced character development. And it made it a much more interesting film for, to me to find that. And throughout the film, the effects of that sort of unfolded because uh, – the way that people reacted to various scenes was not at all what I expected, with one exception. But um, most of it, uh, most of the time, the audience was much more engaged, I thought, with much less going to and fro in spite of the three-hour three length. It was, it was really a surprise in lots of ways. It's almost as if the Marvel Universe people, aware of the fact that one of the criticisms of this incredible oxygen-consuming cycle of movies using up the time and talents of some of the most prominent actors uh, working in movies these days that, well, we could deliver some heft. Here, here's a little Eric Romer hour for you, all right? So um, <laughs> let's hear a little, let's hear a clip from the movie, and then I want to turn back to that whole question again. Uh, this is, I don't think, I mean, the, well, first of all, this clip's been released everywhere, so I don't feel too bad about you hearing it. it it's uh, some of those primary characters, I think maybe you hear Nebula as well, talking about what they're going to do about all the people that they love who are dead. He used the stones again. Hey, we'd be going in short-handed, you know? Look, he's still got the stones, so... So let's get him. Use them to bring everyone back. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. Even if there's a, a small chance that we can undo this, I mean, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try. If we do this, how do we know it's going to end any differently than it did before? Because before you didn't have me. Hey, new girl, everybody in this room is about that superhero life. And if you don't mind my asking, where the hell have you been all this time? There are a lot of other planets in the universe. And unfortunately, they didn't have you guys. Let's go get this son of a bitch. All right, a couple of things just to annotate that clip. Uh, first of all, uh, Captain America's potty mouth has gotten worse. He used to be kind of famous for not wanting to swear. And I think he has, like, he may, he may even drop an even worse one later in the movie. I was trying to confirm that. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, he says son of a bitch there. The, the new girl that they're talking about uh, is Brie Larson uh, as Captain Marvel, who appears to be pr- the most powerful heroic being in the Marvel Universe, which is kind of interesting, too. It's kind of difficult to kind of measure her powers, but they seem to exceed everybody else's, maybe including, say, Thor's. Um, you know, bef- before we go a little bit more into the movie, I just want to go back, James, and I will just go around uh, the table in the opposite direction and just talk a little bit about what this Marvel 22 movie universe, and obviously Marvel movies are not going to stop. In fact, Captain Marvel will be a big part of what goes forward. Black Panther, I assume, is a big part of what goes forward. There'll be other stuff. There's other stuff expanding onto streaming because Disney owns all this stuff and they've got Disney Plus that they're going to be launching. I know of at least one of these Avengers characters who's going to get uh, an individual series. But this, you know, for, for people who love movies, love cinema, the footprint that this thing has made on movies since about 2008 is a pretty problematic thing, I would assume. 
Well, it is. I I, I do think, especially since Disney swallowed 20th Century Fox and will control about 40 percent of the output of movies from major major distributors, I think it has the potential to be something uh, problematic because the expectations now after this opening, this record-breaking opening, the expectations from investors will be huge. And I do think that in the past, when you've had effects like this, some big movie has has been, had a big footprint in the market. And one of the things that has happened then has been that these distributors or these studios have decided to open up independent uh, studios whereby they funded things they would never have funded before. And so you start to get some crumbs falling on the floor <laughs> and, and, and new filmmakers come into the market. Um, and I, I would hope that this would happen, but Disney has not had a history of doing that, um, and they have actually been much more of a sort of ruthless money machine in many ways. And this film is remarkable just in that such an entertaining film and such a good film with relatively flu, uh, few flaws could be in the market from this major distributor. But the question is, could you could you do it again or will that continue? And I think that as far as cinema is concerned, it's kind of like the a, a very clear demonstration of the sort of bifurcation of cinema that is happening, that there are these massive blockbusters and a major commercial market for those films. And then there's cinema other, which is going to art houses, things that play in smaller theaters or that also play online, of course, they're streamed. But it means that the art of cinema, if you like, is uh, is very clearly delineated by the presence of something enormous like Endgame versus the other interesting films, which incidentally, many of which got forced out over the past couple of weeks right. Uh, right. because there was so much money to be made selling food at the end game shows that, uh, you know, you know that uh, Disney people were on the phone saying, look, we need to be uh, starting this movie every five minutes uh, to hell with all the rest <laughs> of it. You know, knock them out. And, that, and, and right. when you have 40 percent of the market, you can get away with that stuff. So, right. Bill, before we go to your comment, just to put a, a price tag on this, and this is from our producer, Jonathan McDiaper Pants. Um, yeah, the the total worldwide gross so far for the Marvel Cinematic Universe's feature films, these 22 films we're talking about, uh, 3,000 minutes supposedly of viewing time, uh, which may tie into an oft-repeated line in this movie, $20.4 billion. So $20 billion, um, you know, 22 movies. They're doing almost a billion a film. Uh, so this is not going to stop anytime soon. Go ahead, Bill. Well, James is action is absolutely right. There is there are just a handful of these giant mega global media corporations that do control most of the market in movies, film, television, music, books even, and they are they are like these massive creatures that you could actually see as villains in an Avenger movie, and they do dominate, and they do stomp on everything. Their only priority is to make money, uh, and ex-Disney CEO, CEO admitted as such that that was their only priority, their only mandate, it had nothing to do with storytelling or anything else. And... You know, I went to see the the film at a theater, a local theater that has 17 theaters, and I would guess at least six, seven, maybe more, half of them were sh showing just this one film. 
So obviously then there's an absence. There's something that's being squeezed out. Mm-hmm. It does have just a, just this this juggernaut force, and juggernaut, by the way, is an X-Men villain, um, <laughs> to just plow through everything. And I, I think there are also now alternatives of how people can both create, distribute, and consume films. But I think the the biggest thing that I worry about is the ability to just go to a theater and watch a film in a theater if it's not one of these giant mega films. We're lo- where this studio is located right here, where we're speaking from, we're lucky because we have institutions like Cine Studio at Trinity College. We have real art ways. So there are places where we can still see other types of films on screens, on the big screens. But in other parts of uh, the country and in other parts of the world, I don't know if people are as lucky as we are in this little pocket that we're in. Susan, I don't even know what they're complaining about. I mean, <laughs> we're, you know, just in a matter of weeks, I think we're going to see the major release of a movie in which the the guy who was the kid in About a Boy and who now is an X-Man, he's the beast, uh, is going to play an author. Of course, it's Tolkien. So that's what they're going to do now. They're going to do biopics of fantasy authors. But you, like me, as and to a certain degree, Bill, as consumers of nerd culture, you know, do we have a glut here or are we happy with this or how do we feel about it? Well, I mean, if you take a look at the two biggest movie franchises, what are they? It's the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And that's nerd stuff. It's science fiction. Uh, and the reason why it's so popular is it's, you know, it's people's childhood first off. But it's also really well done. It's exciting. It's interesting. People like these characters. Uh, I think that there's – I don't think that the uh, – that necessarily people would necessarily be going to the movies at this point in the spring that much if you weren't getting these big draws coming in. So, yeah, I'm absolutely pushing stuff out. Hmm. But are these things that were going to be in crowded theaters or not? I mean, every single theater that I has been sort of sold out, it's been tons of people cramming themselves in to see Endgame. Um, would you necessarily have that for other movies? And if these movies just aren't drawing people in, well, that Maybe that's a problem. Maybe there's, they're not being promoted enough. Maybe it's just not what the public wants. I, I also want to ask – I'd be interested in hearing this from all of you. But Susan, you know, one of the things the Oscars toyed with doing last year was maybe having a different category for these really incredibly popular movies. doesn't really make sense for them to compete head-to-head with a William James you know, adaptation or a Henry James adaptation or a William James adapt- adaptation for that mm-hmm. matter. But, you know, and, and I looked – you look at these movies and I thought in, in the previous movie, Infinity Wars, that Josh Brolin's portrayal of Thanos, who in many respects is the center of that movie, uh, the villain more than the heroes, was spectacular. I mean, if I, I, if I were them, I would have put on an Oscar push to get Josh Brolin a Best Supporting Actor nomination. And I wouldn't be surprised if this happens for, for Robert Downey. This time mm-hmm. he has this very wintry, layered, complicated performance. I don't know. Can, can we look at these things the way that we – and hold them to the same kinds of standards that we hold more serious movies? Well, we talk about other movies as being more serious. Mm. Why? So this is something I find uh, in the science fiction writing community as well, that if something, if a book is science fiction, if that's how it's marketed and that's how it's classed, it's not going to be taken seriously by serious literature people. So uh, you're not going to get 
people considering it for National Book Awards, even though it might be something fantastic. Uh, it might be something that's incredibly well-written, very powerful, addresses powerful themes. If it's got some aliens in it, if it's got some spaceships in it, uh, then immediately it's unserious. It's not serious. It shouldn't be taken that seriously for that kind. It's not art, basically. And, you know, I can push back on that a little bit. I think that there are some remarkable artistic cinematic moments in pretty much every single one of these MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, Endgame especially. Uh, we were talking about the beginning of Endgame and the sort of this, uh, the tone that it sets, some of these wonderful performances, uh, just the, the development of these characters and the way these great actors are able to portray them. There's so much that's really good and really quality going on here. So I think we're actually getting a treat with this movie. It's, it's both, uh, it's a it's a decent story. It's not great. It's not, you know, but it's not the best. But it's also got some great acting in it and some great cinematography. Why should we not take that seriously? I, I agree with that. I don't want to argue for this rigid demarcation between high culture and low culture. It's foolish to think that there can't be a compelling story told just because it involves strange flying beings and monsters and creatures. I mean, let's not forget Beowulf is about a dragon. And, um, you know, Frankenstein was about this creature that was sewn together and then reanimated. And we could, we could, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, we could give you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of things that are now considered just by virtue of time to be classic great literature, but really did deal with strange creatures doing strange science fiction-y kind of things. And so... You know, I, I don't think there should be that that type of demarcation being made. James? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that raising this issue, uh, what you said, Susan, about um, what's serious and what's not, how, how you view, how the mass audience views things. And um, I mean, if you if you run back to, well, certainly in my lifetime, when I first got into running movies, um, there was no alternative. And so there was only one place where people got together. Uh, and uh, there was television, of course, but not not nearly in, in the same way that it exists now. And so you would have a large audience enjoying a story that could be anything from something like Yellow Submarine or it could be um, it could be War and Peace, for example, the Russian War and Peace. That, 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 that these were things that people got, gathered together to see. Um, and there are all sorts of wrinkles to that. That are, I mean, at first you think serious or not serious. And I think the case of science fiction is fascinating because I'm a great science fiction fan. And I, I think science fiction to me growing up and, uh, and, and throughout my life has always been the place of enormous leaps of imagination that made me, uh, I, I mean, I would certainly think of my own relationship with it as serious, that it's not just entertainment. It's something, it, it is something serious. But um, in the case of uh, film as it exists now or cinema as it exists now, um, there is no divorcing the content of something like Endgame, however good it is, and I think it's a really very good film, uh, there's no divorcing it from the massiveness of it and its connection with ancillary things like selling food. And um, <laughs> there are good things and bad things about about that. I mean, one of the things that I think is really great about it is that hundreds of thousands, maybe millions more people are getting back to the experience of sitting in a theater 
and watching a big screen and being totally absorbed by one thing without sort of, you know, sitting at home and watching a massive epic on a tiny screen, that this is actually something that's really good, that people are being introduced to this. And one of the moments I thought was really great in 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 um, in, in uh, Endgame, and I, I don't want to introduce a spoiler, but there were moments which grabbed the audience, in particular, that grabbed the women in the audience. The, the audience I saw it with were probably maybe 60% women and a lot of kids. They brought a lot of kids, babies and, you know, all sorts of uh, whole families there. And there's a moment in the film which is very exhilarating and it made me go back to the early days of going to see films where the audience suddenly reacts. And the amazing thing was that Men in the audience, I turned around to look, you know, and men sort of suddenly caught it. Oh, something's happening here. And they start applauding. And it it was like, OK, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a subtlety going on there. And it was very exhilarating. So I see that as being something that actually is serious. <laughs> I mean, it's a serious thing that's going on there in the midst of this massive commercial machine. You know, we sort of have to end the segment, but he's just got onto such an important thing. And I know, Susan, you have some strong thoughts about uh, how women are represented here. I should say, and this is not a spoiler at all, in, in the grand battle scene at the end, there's this completely weird moment where, like, all of the female available superheroes in this very chaotic battlescape that really doesn't even have battle lines or anything, suddenly are just all together in one spot and have this, you know, hashtag squad moment. Uh, and uh, I don't know. That didn't necessarily <laughs> with, with I, you, I don't think. You know what? I, I liked it. Yeah. But it's like, oh, great. Now it's over. Back to the guys. Um, it was just too fast. It was right? too fast. I wanted more of that. Give me that. Yeah. Give me that whole thing. Give but isn't everything too fast? I mean, every single thing in this movie is too fast, right? Fifteen like, seconds of fame. Except yeah. that there was that incredibly held long shot of Brie Larson with a short haircut at mm. the end. Uh, right. Yes, that was like. Uh, <laughs> okay. There was not enough Captain Marvel in this movie. I thought right. that, they, that she was so underused. At one point, she actually says, "You're not going to see me for a long time." Then. Is gone for, and then she's gone for a long time. She's gone for too much yeah. of the movie uh, because she's so powerful and so interesting. I, I cannot wait to see more of her. Not and enough of Captain, of Captain Marvel. Too much Gwyneth. Even though the mm. Gwyneth stuff was kind of – at the beginning, I just wanted to say. So at the beginning, Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., is trying to settle down next to a lake with – Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and they're literally trying to do the goop thing. I mean, she's reading a book about composting. How much more on the nose can it get? And you can sort of look at you go, well, this is just not, no matter what Tony Stark says, this is not going to last. This is just not going to work. But I don't know. At the end, she's just like flying around. I had forgotten that she even had a suit she could fly around in. Yeah. And again, that's, that's how Marvel doesn't do right by its female characters. There's, you know, there's a bunch of female characters in this movie that you know, either meet a certain kind of end, which uh, uh, which I not don't really approve of, or they just kind of get overlooked, and that's how they might have been throughout the entire Avengers, at least arc of this series. Right. So Marvel tried to give us this great sort of girl power shot, almost to say, look, we really don't have a right. woman problem, but like just underscore that they still do. <laughs> there was even yeah. a controversy about the poster when it first came out, where right. uh, the woman from Black Panther had been completely left out of the yeah, picture. Right. Well, um, uh, there is a, I think, probably prequel movie about the Black Widow, a.k.a. ScarJo, coming up. The future kind of belongs to Captain Marvel and some of these other characters. So it might get better anyway. We have to stop there. Uh, you know, Make sure you, your bladder is empty uh, and your calendar is also empty because you won't be coming out. For, you, like Captain Marvel, will not be back for a while once you walk into Avengers Endgame.
find another like me. All right, that's the new Taylor Swift single. We don't even have that recorded in our computer. What we did is we put a coaxial cable in Susan Bigelow's ear. Uh, <laughs> that's how we got the sound on the air here today, because it's just sort of there. It won't go. Am- <laughs> right, you've got it bad, right? I mean, I've got it bad. The earworm virus. I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I feeling, love it. I've been, I've okay been bopping around all day. Yeah. I, I love the song. Right. I love it. I, I love the video. It's just, it's so happy. Uh, so you're driving around in your Tony Stark Audi, whatever that was, <laughs> just blaring that out the window. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I I like it. I think it's a great little song. Um, it's it's fun. It's like a fun little song for spring. I thought the video was cute. Uh, I I just amazed that there's sort of all of this criticism of it coming out because while it's not the best Taylor Swift song ever, and I am I have to admit I am a Swifty. I do mm. love Taylor Swift. Um, it's not the best song ever, but it's really good. It's really fun. It's uh, and I don't know. There's a sort of cottage industry there of criticizing Taylor Swift and getting on her case. So it's part of the fun of Taylor Swift. I guess it is. Yeah, that's yeah. to whip up the fans. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. They they have plants out there to do that, just to sort of drive sales even more. We'll get to that. We'll get to all of James's uh, paranoid uh, uh, thoughts about paranoid. Pop, uh, well. <laughs> Maybe not parents. Conspiracy. <laughs> uh, but be, before this, see, it's great to have Bill Usman on because I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to do some kind of weird exegesis of all this symbolism of the, you know. And then I thought, no, Bill's here. He'll probably do that on his own. And I was right. So in, you watched the video and I don't know. Yeah. What did you find? What did you figure out? Well, I th- at I, where I thought you were going with this was it's great to have Bill Usman on so I won't be the only cranky old man complaining about this. But, um, yeah, it didn't do much for me. Um, there's lots of, I guess, cool symbolism in the video. It opens with the snake coming at you and then it transforms into butterflies. I, had I mean, the, for- the snake turns into butterflies. Turns it, right, yeah. exactly. I had forgotten that Taylor has this whole thing about snakes. And what she really has done is she's reappropriated the accusation that has been made about her being a snake. And she's, a, she's just taken this on and she embraces it. There was a moment in the video that I really liked when – uh, cats are referred to as their daughters uh, because at home we also refer to our cats as our children. So I could fully embrace that. But it's just so pastel. I really think it could be mistaken for a Skittles commercial. <laughs> and that and it, it, it makes me feel a little sick to my stomach. Now, I will say I'm also <laughs> – not the right target for this song because I like my music, my literature, and my films dark as can be. I like my chocolate dark as can be. This was this, you know, kind of melange of La La Land and Mary Poppins and Bandstand, all in drenched pastel pastel colors. I just I just didn't respond to it and I I didn't respond to the song either. But I also have to say 
I'm not a Taylor Swift hater. There are other songs of hers that I really like. This one just isn't doing it for me. All right. Well, in somewhere in James's mind, that Skittles commercial has already been shot. Uh, <laughs> it probably has. Take it away, James. Well, I have to say, actually, uh, in in response to that, is the the um, uh, the the celebration of darkness and the exhilaration of darkness actually comes in contrast to this sort of uh, this sort of lightness, if you like. Um, and um, oh, I, with the opening of the video, you're right. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. And and I think that um, I mean I really liked it. I have to say, I, I think it's a kind of a passing thing in a way that you know you'll it'll be an earworm for a few days and then it'll be part of the background kind of thing, but. One of the fascinating aspects of it to me that is is really uh, part of actually cinema, not just video and everything, is the ability to create artificial environments is mm-hmm. advancing spectacularly. And one of the reasons for the snake and the uh, fluids at the end is to show they can do it because um, one of the most difficult things to do when you're creating images for film or particularly for film where it's going to be on a big screen is to avoid transparency, to have a liquid that can flow. And people are aware, like you can pour a glass of water on the table or something and everybody knows what water looks like, but it's incredibly hard to produce. And I thought in in a short video like that, this showed an incredible virtuosity in creating that environment and, and, and with a, a perfectly enjoyable song. And I thought sort of I, the, the grumpy cats got me. I thought that was great. They weren't just daughters. They looked singularly grumpy. <laughs> and all of the sort of little details of it, um, I, I just really liked. And I, 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 one of the things that I think about, though, with this is that this endlessly improving artificial universe is getting to a point where uh, you know what we were talking about before about film is that um, there are going to be these stories that are told, human stories that are told without any CGI that are small, if you like, that the art house films that only 10 people will go to. There'll be that. And then everything else will be created universes, um, which is a very different thing. I think that you can show, like with Endgame, a, a, a film that is can be an artificial universe that actually is serious on many levels and is a very satisfying story and a great thing. And then you look at uh, uh, the, this video as um, a, a, I mean, it's a personality, a zippy personality who's latching onto this ability to create this artificial universe in a very, very charismatic way. And I think that it's the, um, certainly, uh, I mean, it, it's really true. I'm sure that commercials by the dozen are being created as we speak with the same software to latch onto the public's awareness of this. Absolutely. I wanted to say quick, two quick things and maybe we uh, can, um, I don't know whether we have time to do the, the Sonic trailer or not. Um, one thing I want to say uh-huh. is that uh, one of the ways you win the game these days is by having something that multiple generations of listeners can like. Uh, and... Um, you do this with something that's kind of bright and tuneful uh, and and appealing to a lot of different people and maybe a little bit anodyne. But so um, I would equate this with Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling. Same kind of song. Yeah. Both of them taking aim also at the Song of the Summer title, which every serious recording artist or unserious recording artist goes after around this time uh, every year. Uh, and she's certainly got a, a nice earworm song there. And it'll be the, I mean, what you want sometimes 
times is that song, We're at a Wedding. Everybody will get up to dance. Like yeah. a year and a half from now, yeah. everybody, the first, first few notes of this will get come up from the DJ or the band, and everybody will get up because they all know the song. You know, And so that's kind of an interesting form uh, of a win. The other thing about this, sort of, sort of back to Bill and Snakes, this is something we quickly talked about uh, as we were emailing, is that you know I do feel like we're living in this intense callback culture where you know you, you can't just watch one Taylor Swift video. You have to know a whole bunch of things from the back catalog to get the jokes and the references. I mean, that couldn't be more true than it is in Avengers Endgame where like on your left cap apparently is like something you're supposed to know. Yeah, that but, was cool for the, me. See, yeah. if you like, if you know <laughs> yeah. that, that's a cool thing. But like you have to watch 22 movies to make sure you get all this stuff. And, you know, in that sense, Susan, I mean, you know, all of us around the table are nerds to some degree. But the level of nerding out that's required to make sure you even, you know, pick up on stuff has become a heavy lift. It has been. Um, you have to consume so much culture in order to actually understand half of what's going on in the, the next bit of culture that you consume. Uh, it's, it's just like meme culture, but taken to the extreme. Uh, and it's, you know, it's part of this kind of mining of our childhood for more stories and more characters and things like that. The things that we liked back in the 80s and 70s are coming back now. Um, and there's always going to be references to how that was back then. But again, this is this is what culture does. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There's always culture has always been very self self referential. Uh, you know, you can take that back to uh, you could take that back to Victorian culture. You can take that back to most historical cultures are self referential in some way, where there's always references to other things in it. Um, it does sort of feed into our obsessiveness. Um, it feeds into, I think it's driven by the internet, where we can endlessly talk about these things and post about them. Uh, but yeah, I I think if you come into this movie fresh, and I haven't seen a lot of the the Marvel movies, I know I know I missed things, and it, it kind of bugs me. There's also a great scene in uh, in Endgame where they discuss tri- time travel exclusively in terms of all the other time travel movies that all of the characters have seen before, yeah. Yeah. which is uh, kind of hilarious. All right, very quickly, um, we are going to have to be fast about this. But another thing that happened this week was a lot of people started complaining about a trailer to a, a Sonic uh, the Hedgehog movie, uh, and they didn't particularly they particularly didn't like the way Sonic looked and the kind of teeth that Sonic had. And so now the studio is announcing, James, they are going to fix that before they release the movie. Well, surprise, surprise, you know? I mean, I think it's actually, it's interesting that the person who put this together, of course, is uh, did Where the Wild Things Are, which I think is one of the misleading things. I, I don't know where he got the idea that Sonic the Hedgehog should be a wild thing, but there were elements of that with some of the things that people noted online that were creepy, like the human teeth and the fingernails and 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 the sort of I don't know the vaguely sort of creepy quality of the appearance in the in the trailer. But I sort of read in that I know I'm the resident conspiracy theorist <laughs> of the studios, but uh, I I sort of have a feeling that there was a big argument at Paramount about this Paramount, which is desperately trying to get some sort of franchise going in the in the animation business. And uh, I can imagine they're extremely nervous. They don't have a lot of money. So they had a big argument about, you know, wait a minute, this trailer, let's see it. Let's put it out there and let's see what happens. And you know that now when you put out trailers, it's a very good way to – it's like bait. You put it out there. You see what's going to happen and what do people say. 
And sometimes, of course, it brings out the worst. It'll bring out racist reactions or obnoxious comments. But in many ways, going out with a potentially money-making franchise, it actually gives you a sense uh, if you're a studio head. Okay, so what about this? So I can just imagine like milliseconds after that trailer went out, those, okay, rethink. (laughs) (laughs) So in order to have time to do endorsements, we have to wrap this up pretty quick. But Bill, I mean, there's sort of the illusion anyway now that you, internet person, have power. Well, you do, I guess, according to Paramount. Uh, internet culture is complaint culture. I can't imagine yeah. anything that can be released, anything that can be discussed, anything that can be said that you're not immediately going to get all kinds of pushback to, that people will rant and rave and act as if it's the worst thing that ever happened. I really don't like the idea of then changing content because of that reaction. You're making it's, Susan feel really bad about those 50 emails that she sent <laughs> to the it's, it's just the worst example of focus grouping everything to death. And I mean, studios have been using focus groups for a while, but now we've turned all of social media into a focus group and then we're going to go back and change the content because of it. I think it's not a necessarily healthy trend for creation. Susan, last word. And yet, I, I part of me thinks this is a marketing ploy. Um, only because... <laughs> There's another conspiracy. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's possible they must have known. They must have known that this was this was horrible and creepy. They might uh, not be that smart. They might not be, but... The, the thing is that His now people are did. talking about this terrible movie, um, and they're talking about you know they're talking about Sonic, which in in a sort of a normal universe we wouldn't really care about Sonic that much, but now because Sonic is creepy and has human teeth, now we've been talking about him, and they're like, oh, we're going to go back and we're going to fix it. I still okay. don't care about Sonic. Me All right, either. we got to go to a break. Uh, we'll come back with some endorsements after this. watch any of these movies, but my eye doctor says I'm starting to get tesseracts. Is that good or bad? I mean, should I try to get more tesseracts? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McDiaperpants. Our new intern is Thanos. Weird guy. Quiet. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tilda Swinton. We'll be back on Monday following up on the weekend's news. And now, back to Colin. Time to make some endorsements of Bill Usman. Why don't you get us going? Okay, I'm going to try to squeeze in two quickly. Um, The first is a book by the nonfiction author Robert Wright that uh, came out just a couple years ago called Why Buddhism is True. And the subtitle is The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. And he does something really interesting here, which is he tries to bring together secular Buddhism and uh, neuroscience and cognitive science and psychology to suggest that the findings of cognitive psychology suggest that everything that is thought of in Buddhism actually is true and actually is good for us. And I think it's just a fascinating uh, bringing together of philosophy, religion, and science. And then very, very quickly, check out, um, you can see this on YouTube, um, a guy by the name of Matt Easton. And he was the valedictorian at BYU this year. And in his commencement speech, um, this one, I guess this is a spoiler, but it's okay. In his commencement speech at Brigham Young University, he comes out. And it's just the most amazing little six-minute video. Make sure you have tissues with you because you will cry. So a lot of 
people thought Taylor Swift was going to do that. Instead, he did it. Okay. Um, that, there was like this big buildup about Taylor Swift. All right. Susan Bigelow, what have you got? So um, I've got two things as well. Uh, the first one, speaking of mining our childhoods for things, uh, the, the new She-Ra has its second season out. And again, this is this animated. Uh, it's, it's actually really funny. It's really well done. Uh, it's, it's very queer, which is awesome. And it's, uh, it's now on Netflix. It's only seven episodes long, though. It's, it's not long enough, but it's, it's great. Is it, uh, is it sort of a darker reboot? of the? Honestly, or? it's yeah. not. No, okay. uh, I feel like it's, it's relentlessly optimistic and okay, fun. I won't and watch it then. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was asking for Bill, actually. Yep. And the other thing is uh, the new Carsey Blanton art uh, album uh, I've been listening to a lot. I actually heard it uh, first uh, heard on an NPR show about, about this. Um, it's really great. It's fun. It's sort of if you like sort of popish country, uh, it's it's really fantastic. So go check her out. It's Carsey Blanton. Carsey Blanton. All right, because I get emails. What did you say? Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, James. What have you got for us? Um, well, I'm obsessed with trees. But last week I saw a documentary called Burned: Are Trees the New Coal? Which I thought I knew a lot about trees, but it, it burned uh, our trees, the new coal. There's a website. You can read all about it. You can watch the film. Um, it was an extraordinary film, and it really made me think about one of the things that you're hearing increasingly now is that one of the very few things we can do about the catastrophe of climate change is actually plant trees and more trees and actually have some sort of effect on the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere. But one of the things linked with that that I feel so strongly about is please call your legislature and find out why is it that the DOT is cutting all those trees down on the highway and making it look like New Jersey. It is really a disaster for the state of Connecticut. It looks awful and the trees are in the medians. There's no need for cutting these trees down. And so I feel very strongly about that. And I don't know who to call, but I imagine the DOT is involved. But I certainly think legislators should hear about this, that uh, the changing of the landscape that's going on here. Why are we spending money on this when actually leaving the trees there would do us some good? Mm -hmm. An hearing of a grievance. Susan and I have to do that on Wednesdays. Uh, so uh, we're familiar with that format. Uh, OK, so uh, I want to be on behalf of me and James, not that I asked him about it, but I happen to know anyway, uh, just do a quick goodbye to a guy named Wayne Hanson a wonderful farmer uh, whom James and I knew from the Coventry Farmer's Market. Yes. A sweet, quiet uh, guy, but he'd actually uh, he'd attended Harvard and, uh, and didn't stay the whole course and became an organic farmer, one of the first of his kind uh, and a very special guy who, who left us uh, within the last few days. So goodbye, Farmer Wayne. Uh, you were a great guy. Uh, I'm going to do sort of a not very NPR, not very woke endorsement. I know there's all kinds of things wrong with horse racing uh, and I and legitimate concerns about horse racing. There's also legitimate concerns about sports betting. Uh, with all that in mind, I'm still going to recommend betting uh, on the Kentucky Derby, or at least kind of maybe taking an interest uh, on in Saturday's Kentucky Derby. It's a, it'll be a fun one to bet on. And one way that you can bet very successfully is to listen carefully to what I say and then don't do that. Because I bet every year on it. I think it through very carefully. I have never won any, I haven't won a dime on the Kentucky Derby in my life. So the Favorite Omaha Beach has scratched because of breathing issues. 
There are three horses left in the field among the top of the field that are all managed by Bob Baffert, who mm. dominates horse racing uh, anyway. Uh, a fourth horse named Tacitus, who I sort of had as my little secret favorite, is now emerged uh, as another uh, one that you could maybe try to work with and, and, and make some money. So, you know, combining Baffert uh, horses with uh, Tacitus in an exacta or something like that uh, might actually work. Um, but whatever I think. So one thing that I think is that one of the Baffert horses Roadster is not going anywhere and not going to do anything. So betting on Roadster would be a really smart thing to do right now. I mean, unless I change my mind within the next couple of hours. Uh, but it's just, you know, it, it is an event with some pageantry. It is an event that's pretty to watch. It also doesn't consume much of your Saturday evening. It's all over in two or three minutes. If you time it just right, yeah. you know, you can have a mint julep, watch the thing, uh, watch the aftermath, and you're done. So, yes, I am going to uh, endorse the Kentucky Derby uh, and watching it this year. It's, 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 a, it's not a year with an overwhelming favorite. You can maybe have some fun with it. Thanks to our panelists, to Susan Bigelow, librarian, columnist, columnist for CT News Junkie and science fiction fantasy novelist, James Hanley, co-founder of the wonderful Cine Studio at Trinity College, Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Thanks to Kion Wolf on the board and Jonathan McDiaper-Pants for producing to, uh, today's show. We'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. 